This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to Mads World. I'm your host Mads and thank you so much for coming back each week. I'm thrilled to have you here and if you do enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe, rate and review the podcast and just tell one friend about it. Imagine if you all told one person, my listens would double. So please help me out. This week I'm joined by British author, feminist campaigner and psychologist Dr. Jessica Taylor. Jess is the founder of Victim Focus, which she describes as a company designed to challenge and change the victim-blaming practices in social care, policing, mental health, and support services all over the world. In 2019, Jess completed her PhD in forensic psychology from the University of Birmingham with a thesis titled, Logically, I know I'm not to blame, but I still feel to blame, exploring and measuring victim-blaming and self-blame of women who have been subjected to sexual violence. She was later recognised for her contribution to the psychology of victim-blaming of women her work in mental health and her contribution to feminism by the Royal Society of Arts. In 2020, Jess self-published her thesis as a book titled Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. Based on three years of doctoral research and 10 years of practice with women and girls, the book focuses on the reasons why society and individual psychology blames women for male violence committed against them. This year, Jess published her second book, Sexy But Psycho. She described it as a mixture of academic research, history, psychology, and real-life stories of women and girls who have been told that they are mentally ill instead of being listened to. The book focuses on how mental illness has historically been used to discredit women, focusing especially on the 2000s and Britney Spears. In this episode, we talk about the effects of buzzwords like toxic and gaslighting, what terms like toxic masculinity and machismo actually mean, and how this affects men and women independently, and unpacking internalized misogyny. Trigger warning for this episode, we do discuss sexual violence. Hi Jess, how are you? Good, thank you, yeah. I'm really good, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm absolutely buzzing to have you. Um, I thought we could start off with just some questions to sort of get to know you and help our listeners understand who you are before we jump into our chat that I've invited you on the podcast for all about um, toxic masculinity. So 
So I just wanted to start off with what made you want to work in your current field? Oh, everybody always asks me this, but and and I wish <laughs> I had. I wish I had like a proper origin story, but but actually, um, I didn't set out to be a psychologist that specialised in this particular topic. Um, mm-hmm. I initially um, I wanted to go into like neuropsychology, and um, it was actually through volunteering that I became really interested in this topic. So I didn't have the, when I was doing my degree, um, I didn't have enough experience, for example, to get on to the things I wanted, like most students. So I thought, well, I'll go out and I'm gonna try and give my time. I've got some spare hours on a Friday. And so I went to a volunteer center and said, you know, I've got this time, what is there available that I could do? And they came back to me a couple of days later and said, well, there's this role working in sexual and domestic violence. It's voluntary and you work in the courtroom um, and you support the victims as they give their evidence. And I thought, wow. well, I've never heard of anything like this. I've never done anything like this. So yeah, um, I decided, yeah, so I decided, I was only 19. So I decided to go and do that. Um, and it was years then of, of, of different roles in that sector that made me realise that we were failing so badly and so many women and girls were being subjected to this behaviour and that was when I thought, do you know what, I'm going to be a psychologist that focuses on changing that. And so it was, you know, I do have my own personal experience of, of, you know, violence and things like that from when I was younger, but people, I think, make an assumption that that's what led me to do it, but it actually wasn't. It was other women's traumas and it was the fact that other women were being failed so badly and I felt like Mm. I almost felt like I was colluding with that by working in the court you know so I like resigned and decided that I wanted to try and change the system I didn't want to work in it do you know what you said that you don't have an origin story but I think that's (laughs) quite quite a fantastic origin story I mean (laughs) that's like superhero level origin story going and you know seeing it firsthand and and I think it just shows goes to show how much empathy you have as well I mean how can you not in being in a situation like that but wanting to go and volunteer your time and then you know extending it out to what you do now with um with victim focus and Mm. and I was hoping you could tell tell our listeners a little bit about victim focus and the work you do here so obviously you founded the organization but um how has that sort of developed and and what are you doing now to to support that okay so victim focus is five and a half years old now um and when I set the company up I was actually working in in national like senior management in um anti-human trafficking and um the sexual exploitation of teenage girls and again I just saw so much failure. These girls were being treated terribly um, and they were Mm. being victim blamed. And, you know, even girls that were being trafficked across the country were still being blamed somehow. I mean, like, you know, I I really struggled with that on a day-to-day basis. And and I started challenging systems and authorities and giving speeches and writing things. And I noticed that people were just really quite defensive. And I thought, the only way I am going to be able to do this is if I am on my own because it gives me the freedom to say and do what I need to do without any control from other people uh, or any sort of outside influence. So I set Victim Focus up and um, it's just grown and grown and grown. And now uh, what we do is we work internationally um, and doing more and more international stuff actually in the last six months or so. 
to challenge poor practice towards women and girls when they've been subjected to trauma, male violence, forms of abuse and oppression. Mm-hmm. We um, try to only take on projects where people want actual change. So they're looking for true change. So for example, we work with a lot of police forces that are looking to address the misogyny in that force and they want true change. Um, Mm -hmm. And we create, you know, free research, free reports, resources for women and girls. Um, We do a lot of public speaking. And then through that, I've ended up doing a lot of media. I've written books and things like that. So it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. That's so impressive. And and speaking of books, you had your latest book come out, Sexy But Psycho, earlier in the year, if I'm correct. Can yeah. you tell me all about that and tell our listeners about that? And I'll pop a, a link in the episode description as well so everyone can go out and grab a copy if they feel like reading it. Sexy But Psycho, I think, and I still <laughs> think this, is one of, if it might be the most important thing that I ever wrote and ever will write ever for the rest of my life. Like it was That's something... a huge statement. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it is. I, like, uh, and I remember saying yeah. it to my publishers, and I was like, "Sorry, <laughs> like this is this is my peak. <laughs> um, this is the peak." <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's sexy but psycho is born from years and years of my experience of working with women and girls when they try to come forward and they try to report abuse and violence and things that they've been through only to be told that actually they're mentally ill they have a mental health issue they've got personality disorder they've got bipolar and this is actually Mm. an extremely common experience so like when I was um, running you know sexual violence services or when I was working in the courts the majority of women and girls that I came across, even though they'd reported, you know, sexual assault or rape or abuse, domestic abuse, something like that, they had then been told that their responses were, you know, disorders, depression, anxiety, you know, personality disorders and stuff like that. And it got to me, it really got to me over the years. So the book is Mm. my way of essentially arguing that we are deliberately pathologizing women and girls and convincing them that they are mentally ill instead of validating the true trauma of being a woman in a patriarchy where you are likely to be sexually assaulted, catcalled in the street, harassed, you know, abused, yeah. raped. Like these things are very common experiences, but the narrative in society is that they're not common experiences. So if they keep happening to you, there must be something wrong with you. You must be bringing it on yourself or you must be um, asking for it or picking the wrong men over and over again, or whatever it is. Mm. So the argument in Sexy But Psycho is actually that we are, as a society, convincing women and girls from an early age that it's all in their head and that they're mentally ill and they need medication and they need therapy. Yeah, I guess it is kind of like, um, I hate saying the word gaslighting because it's so overused and I yeah, think it it's is. used incorrectly a lot, but it's almost like professional gaslighting, you know, like from from a, a higher, a more authoritative position, you know, whether that's doctors or whether that's, you know, mental health experts and stuff convincing women and girls that they're, they're experiencing something that is quite a universal experience for a lot of women, but for some reason it's it's... It, the fault of it falls on women rather than external factors, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So um, I wrote a post about this once and I called it mass lighting because I think it's mass gaslighting <laughs> of, of, um, yeah. of women and yeah. girls, like because it's such a, a powerful, systemic, 
global form of gaslighting, you know, that millions and millions of women and girls are being told they have these disorders that nobody can prove. There's no test for them. There's no brain scan. There's no blood test. You know, there's no, it's such a strange experience because you can be told by someone in authority, you have this disorder and you can't then go, Mm. no, I don't. Because they'll say, well, yeah. you're, you're denying the diagnosis. You're you're refusing to engage. Like, well, you know, and in the same way that women often co- contact me and say, well, I've told them that I don't think I have personality disorder. I've told them that I've been abused and I've told them mm. that I don't want to take the medication anymore because I don't think I ha- there's anything wrong with me. And then they'll be told, mm. well, that's just evidence of your mental illness because you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah. So how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that? And I wonder if... I'm going to try and articulate this the best way I can, but where do you think from a professional perspective in terms of doctors, do you think that that's coming from a higher patriarchal level or their education maybe being taught by more men than women or maybe more men than women are in these roles telling women these, like, is it just a combination of all of those things? Like what, where do you think it's stemming from that women are being told this rather than, you know, maybe looking at external factors and seeing why they might have had the experiences that they've had it's not sex specific is the first thing so female psychiatrists are just as likely to tell women they're mentally ill as male psychiatrists and and same with mental health nurses and the same with gps so it you know doctors Mm -hmm. so it's 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 definitely not about you know oh it's it's men putting this down it was definitely mm. men that originally theorized these things like the DSM and psychiatry, psychology, sociology, criminology. It's men for many, many years, you know, those original thinkers. And a lot of what they said was misogynistic. A lot of what they said was racist. Mm. A lot of what they said was homophobic. And then we've, we've, we've built on that instead of deconstructing it and starting again. So mm. that's one of the issues. But then the other issue is actually a little bit more about the way that we try to understand human conditions. So you know, some of this stuff, the reason that all, you know, for example, psychiatrists and mental health students and doctors and stuff, they are all taught in the same way. They're all educated in the same way that mental health is an illness. It's an illness inside the brain and that it is up to the individual to be treated, to seek help and to fix themselves or to recover. Whereas for me as a psychologist, my position is that these forms of suffering are not inside the head of people they're in society and like you say these external influences all the time but you know Mm. I teach on those programs and I'm often one of the only lecturers that says this this I'm saying right now because the majority of all of these professionals um, have been taught that all of these people they're seeing have an innate mental illness whereas obviously I don't Mm. believe that to be true yeah that's super fascinating and I think once we get into our conversation about, um, you know, the word toxicity and, and gaslighting again, I think it'll be really, really interesting to, to divulge a bit more into that. But before we do, I'd love to know, I know you spoke about how the women and girls that you were working with in the courts and everything, they were super inspiring for you and they were a huge um, turning point in your life into wanting to go into the field you're in now. But who who else are your biggest inspirations? Who do you look to to inspire you and who sort of motivates you? Oh, that's really difficult because there's just been so yeah. many different, there's been so many like different people over the years. Um, mm. And definitely when I was younger, because I didn't really have any role models around me, most of my inspirations were authors. 
So, cause I've read so yeah. many books and, um, mm-hmm. I definitely feel that, um, and I've said this before when people have interviewed me, Mallory Blackman really changed the way I look at the whole world. She wrote the Noughts and Crosses trilogy and recently the BBC made it into a drama series and I had the oh, privilege. Oh, I, I watched this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. It was, right. It was awesome. Fantastic. It, yeah. Really, well, really good. Yeah. 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 Incredible piece of work. Um, I just rave yeah. about it. I feel like I've been raving about it since I was like nine years old. Um, so, <laughs> um, I read those books when they were first released. Um, so I would have been mm-hmm. between maybe like ten and twelve years old or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. nine and twelve years old. So, um. She just tipped the world upside down and taught me just a whole other way of looking at the world and critical thinking at a very sensitive period in child development, which is around that age. Um, Mm -hmm. And she really did, I think, and I've I've had the privilege of talking to her about this, actually. I really do Mm -hmm. think that she shaped... That's so cool, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know, trust me. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I think, she shaped a lot of my critical thinking skills as a child. Um, yeah. And I think that my critical thinking skills is what have carried me through to this day and, and and will for the rest of my life. And I think that came from her and her books and everything that I read from her. And then I think that there was a long time where I didn't really have any role models whatsoever. And I was trying to figure out what on earth I was supposed to be and how, you know, how are you supposed to be? And stuff like that yeah. and I definitely got lost for many years sort of not having anybody to look up to at all um yeah. and but I do think that you know there's there's been a lot of like I say sort of like authors women in the public eye people that I've just sort of looked at and thought mm-hmm. that's incredible that's amazing and I think that I'm lucky yeah. in a way that I'm not the um I don't have any like I don't have a jealous streak you know how some people look at women that are really successful and they get mardy and they get like resentful yeah I I've not got that and I've never had it and I don't know why it's just not there so so when I see a woman that's doing amazing I just think oh my god that's so cool like and I get all excited and stuff and I just think imagine how much work she's put in imagine how well she's doing imagine how much she's put into that and I've always been like that. So I think that's always inspired me. When I see a woman that's done something amazing or written something amazing or, or she's worked really hard, at, it or it just like, it yeah. uh, gives me loads of energy. Like that's where my energy comes from. That's so beautiful. I think it's quite different. It is very different. And I know you've done some work as well about women struggling to to feel that towards other women and women struggling to be just have healthy relationships with other women and and the ability of women to hate other women for for doing well. I think yeah, some of the stuff you've written about that is is really fascinating, but where do you think that why do you think this is sort of the way that that you feel and you know, could you tell us a bit more about you know, how women can have that competitive edge against other women and why we might feel like that. Do you think that's to do with internalised misogyny or do you think that that kind of leads into our conversation that we're about to have about toxic masculinity? I think that it is internalised misogyny, but I also think that the patriarchy and toxic masculinity is such that it is set up to pit women against each other. Um, We are supposed to be, by design in this society we are supposed to be at loggerheads we are not supposed to work together Mm. because if we work together Mm. we would end up as powerful if not much more powerful than the current patriarchy and historic patriarchy but we we are kept separated and we are Mm. pitted against each other for really superficial shit like what we look like or you know 
like how sexy we are or who fancies us or I don't know, like whatever it is, right? Mm. So mm-hmm. there is there's a real advantage to keeping women hating each other. Um, there really is. And, you know, you see that on a micro level, but you also see that on this huge level. Like I, I what fascinates me, really fascinates me, because I'm a huge huge hip-hop fan and have been forever is that um yeah there's all you I think you're if you're if you're a hip-hop fan or if you're listening to this you'll know exactly what I'm about like what I you're gonna know what I mean when I say this yeah there's only allowed to be one like leader female MC at any one time right otherwise they will pit a woman against her so for example like when Nicki Minaj is at the top of her game they will deliberately go out and find someone and, and they won't they won't let them work together oh no because that's too easy, isn't it? They'll yeah. pit them against each other and they'll yeah. they'll turn it into beef that didn't exist and they'll start rumours and they'll be shit cracking off and there's all this beef mm. and stuff. So, like, it's deliberate. Like, they, imagine what would happen if, for example, women in that industry were allowed to collab, work together, support each other, but that's not allowed to happen. Whereas the men are collabing all the time, yeah. doing it constantly. The women, it's like, there's only yeah. allowed to be one. There's only allowed to be one. And you see that in other industries as well and in other parts you know of of social life like there can only be you know sort of one like almost like alpha female um and then everyone else gets like Meghan Markle and and Kate Middleton I suppose as well I mean everyone's pitting them against each other and and you know I've heard this is just you know salacious gossip but someone I work with said that she knows she went to the royal wedding and stuff and it's actually Harry and and will that have beef with each other, but the media makes it all about Megan and whether that's true or not. But I mean, they do make this this rivalry between them when it's like, why does there have to be a rivalry? Why can't they both just coexist and it's not, yeah. it's not a thing? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's really interesting because that, again, is that sort of level of misogyny where it's so much more almost like... um, juicy and they know that it's women reading this shit as well so like it's women reading about women's Mm. beef with each other whereas if they sort of reported that i don't know like two men are arguing or two men are falling out people like "Mm." so sort of like "Mm." i think this is so prevalent in um in toxic friendships as well and i I know earlier we spoke about how the word gaslighting has become something of a buzzword and you know it's it's thrown around on social media and people might not even really understand what they're saying when they say that and i feel like toxic is sort of a word that is used similarly to that so I was super interested to ask you how you think the popularization of these terms like gaslighting and toxic, how do you think that's had an impact on survivors and just society in general? And do you think it's more positive or more negative? Oh, that's so, that's such a good question. Um, The thing is about that is that the more you neutralize and minimize terms that are important for description, they they eventually Mm -hmm. become watered down until they mean nothing. And then they are seen as just like you say just like buzzwords nobody really understands them nobody really people just throw them around you know we I get the same thing in in, Mm. with um trauma-informed so like you know I'm trying Mm. to make what we do trauma-informed and anti-pathology and then you get people throwing that around they've got no idea what they're talking about they just say it um and Mm. it's the same with toxic It's, it's definitely the same with gaslighting and I'll tell you my other one my book there narcissistic (laughs) Oh my gosh, am I oh sick God. of hearing? Oh, they're narcissistic. They've got yeah. the clip. Oh, my nar- narcissistic ex, and oh, she's a narcissist. Oh, she's obviously or OC or OCD. Oh, I know. When people say I'm just, I'm just a bit OCD. Well, you, what do you mean you're a bit OCD? Like it's, it's a, it's a like a diagnosis that like you can't just be a bit something. Like you either are or you aren't. And people just say it when like they like to have a tidy desk. I think, no, yeah, and this that's not what it means. <laughs> is I think some of this as well, although this is quite, uh, I, we would end up get down a rabbit hole if we end up talking about this. Some of this is about identity yeah. and identity politics because mm. in a society that is individualistic, it will rely and lean on identity. And one of the things that has definitely happened is that people are starting to identify with labels. So they're identifying even with things like that. So rather than saying, um, uh, you know, I'm a very tidy person. I like everything just so, and I don't like a mess. They're going, I am OCD or I am th- compulsive or I am this. So like the, it's the labeling of sort of mm. identifying into a label that, you know, 
means mm-hmm. something to them and it's the same with like gaslighting uh, narcissism you know and toxic and all that mm. sort of stuff and it really does water it down so that when you need to talk about that in its true sense it is then almost meaningless it's difficult as well to find to find new words to describe things like those words were created with purpose and they like yeah. they stemmed from things that actually had real meaning yeah. but when like you said when they get watered down like how do you find the words to you know really encapsulate someone's experience when those words have sort of been taken and just commodified or you know used on TikTok a million times with a million videos of people saying they yeah. have narcissistic personality yeah. disorder <laughs> or something when it, it it just takes so much away from from people who actually have have had those experiences. Yeah, definitely. My next question was for you is, so I think the term toxic masculinity, it's something that makes men real as soon as they hear it. It gets quite a negative response and it feels like I think men respond quite negatively to it because they instantly think that it's an attack. But I'd love to hear from you, what do terms like toxic masculinity and machismo actually mean? Because, and what do they mean to you? Because I think it's interesting to unpick them because as I said, they get quite a negative response, but they're not a negative. I mean, they are about a negative concept, but also the way that they affect men is really interesting as well. So I I just want to hear from you about that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So the thing is about toxic masculinity is that people hear that. and, And do you know what they hear when you say toxic masculinity? They hear toxic men. Yeah, they're not. They don't. Yeah, they're not. They they can't separate the, the them. They can't separate the concepts because when we talk about toxic masculinity, what we're talking about is a set of sort of um, beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that men are indoctrinated into as well from birth. Mm. So, toxic masculinity is therefore that sort of form of the of the masculine gender role built on things like aggression, strength, power, control. Um, you know, being, uh, for example, like no emotion, uh, no empathy, stuff like that. And then that gender role becoming so embedded and so powerful that it becomes toxic to everyone. It becomes toxic to the men living in that gender role and to the little boys that are being groomed into that gender role. It becomes toxic to the little girls that are dealing with that gender role in society. And obviously it becomes toxic and very dangerous uh, for women and girls that are then victims of the behavior that stems from that role in society. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously with machismo, you know, that sort of sense of being a man and being self-reliant or being, you know, like a pride of being an exaggerated version of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I, I did some, um, I wrote some stuff about, um, machismo in like Latino culture because, um, mm-hmm. I found that really fascinating because it is linked to victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the, that you're much more likely um, to victim blame women in those cultures when they've been subjected to male violence because of this overarching culture of machismo that you know is embedded into the fabric of everyday life mm-hmm. I think that um, like I say though the reason that people don't take this conversation in is because they hear it as 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 if I'm sat here saying uh, all men are toxic all yeah. men are dangerous all men are you know this and that's not at all what is, is being said but in a way that's just a quick easy way of trying to shut women up when they're trying to talk about things sure. is to like sort of twist what they say oversimplify it you know but I think 
toxic masculinity is also something I had an interest in like years ago. I did my, funnily enough, when I did my undergraduate degree, I did my dissertation on toxic masculinity. Did you? Um, <laughs> and I, in, I did. I mm. interviewed men about what they thought masculinity was and what it is to be a man. Yeah. And then I interviewed them about what, what is it to sort of play that role? And do you feel pressure to be a masculine man mm. or not? And I interviewed men of different ages. Um, I think the youngest was in his 20s and the oldest was in his 60s. And um, it was fascinating, some of the things that they said to me. And I'll never forget some of the comments that the older men made about saying that when you're down the pub, you're like, you know, you have to play this masculine role and be like, oh, um, you know, my wife doesn't tell me what to do and like I'll make her do the dishes and I'm not clean in the house and this sort of stuff. And then like the men were saying to me, but we all know that when he goes home, he is cooking a Sunday roast with his wife. He is doing the dishes. He is doing these things. And he likes and it. it. It's all a big he loves game. It. <laughs> yeah, and he enjoys it. Yeah. So like um, one guy gave me an example of this man that he was in a pub with and they ended up talking about Westlife and um and about Westlife's album or something was in the charts or something like that and all the men around the table were like oh Westlife is no oh, they're just they're, like they're petty it's disgusting they're so like pathetic and it's it's women's music and all this sort of stuff but like at least a few of them knew <laughs> that each other really liked Westlife so and they like, had this, like fake conversation they're in the charts like that means people like everyone's <laughs> listening it's not like it's the women's chart like people like it <laughs> i know yeah. and it just it really did fascinate me that you yeah. know do you, you know that was years ago i was just an undergraduate student doing my psychology degree and, but I, even the interviews with that one of the men said to me it's like living as two different people inside of yourself. The one, oh the God. man you've got to show to everyone else mm. and like the man that I actually am. And like, don't get me wrong. Some of them had some really deep embedded like views about what they thought masculinity was. Like, for example, mm. one of the men said something like, um, I feel that masculinity means that I must provide for my family. I am the breadwinner. I have, I'm responsible mm. for everything. You know, I've got to be the one that does everything. I've got to be the powerful mm. one. I've got to be the controlling one. I've got to be the one that doesn't show emotion. I've got to be the rock. And I was sort of saying to him, does that not put an incredible amount of pressure on you? Yeah. And he was like, well, yes, but that's my role. But then I said, but what if you met a woman that was all those things as well? And that was where it broke down for him because he was he didn't want a woman that was all those things. Like he, yeah. it was almost as if that would give him a rival. Yeah. And I was just, it was just, it, and that's how I think it becomes toxic. Mm. God, that's so interesting. I feel like, yeah, it's usually in the context of talking about toxic masculinity, it's easy to speak about and get wrapped up in, you know, the the female experience of toxic masculinity because I think, you know, it it is arguably a lot worse, but it's really interesting to look at the male side of it just because I think a lot of men may not realise how toxic masculinity and living in a patriarchy negatively affects them. Because even if they're, even if they're not sitting there thinking like, oh, I benefit from the patriarchy, this is great, blah blah blah, they're they're just enjoying what they know, and it's just the norm for their whole yeah, they life. Are. Yeah, they are. They're not looking at the negatives of it, and they see, as we said, the word to- toxic masculinity. They they hear the words toxic men, and they're instantly like, well, you're just a feminazi, and you know, <laughs> you're just coming yeah, for me, yeah. and you want to take away my rights, and all this sort of thing. But it's, I find it so interesting, especially that you did your PhD about that, because it's just something that you don't really hear about as much, and it's super interesting. 
Well, I did. I didn't do my PhD on it. Oh. I did. Uh, I did. Well, I purely just did a dissertation. Yeah. yeah. So I, I actually did my PhD on um, the psychology of victim blaming of women and girls subjected to male violence because wow. I think, and I think actually, because I'm always sort of considering every angle, I do mm. think that's made me a better psychologist because, you know, like you just said you know, men are, the best way to explain it, I think, is men are harmed by toxic masculinity and patriarchy, but women are oppressed and that is different. So men mm. benefit from these things and they're also harmed, but women are severely harmed and oppressed globally on a global scale. Billions of women are being harmed and oppressed. That is mm. not the same as the harm that men, you know, for example, for example, you know, millions and millions and millions of women will be raped this year across the world by mm -hmm. men, right? Mm -hmm. Versus men saying things like, you know, it's not fair. I should be able to show my emotions as well. And it's hard that men yeah. aren't allowed to cry. They're two completely different experiences. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, it's not that I'm ignoring, you know, it's not that I want to ignore men's experiences of toxic masculinity and patriarchy, but I do think that the impact on women is slightly more serious. Yeah. So definitely. I focus on that. But it, you're mm. right in that, if you can if you can understand that men were once tiny little babies with no knowledge of the world mm. they have been groomed into their roles by other grown-ups by other people by other mm -hmm. children mm. you are born blank essentially mm -hmm. like i well i know this is a philosophical position to take but i mm -hmm. believe in um a concept called tabula rasa which means all humans mm. are born blank Mm -hmm. and that you become what's written on you so mm -hmm. every experience you ever have shapes who you become mm. and if you consider that from a very very young age little boys and little girls are groomed into their gender role into who they are expected to be how they are expected to behave mm. what they say what they do what they play with how they dress who they're allowed to be friends with you know you are shaped you are molded into what you become and that's this and that's where toxic masculinity and also misogyny and femininity comes from do you think there's such thing as toxic femininity and what would you say that that encompasses if it does exist i think conceptually yes it exists um, but I don't think it's anywhere near as powerful or systemic as toxic masculinity in the mm -hmm. same way that conceptually and theoretically misandry exists but it's mm. not anywhere near as systemic or powerful as misogyny it has no power in in a patriarchy mm. um so i think that there is there are elements of you know i think a lot of mm, i don't know i think a lot of what is seen or thrown around especially on the internet that of toxic femininity is actually just misogyny it's just internalized and externalized misogyny that was one of my next questions was about internalized misogyny and that's more coming from females and you know like you were saying the roles that we're groomed into can you tell me what internalized misogyny means to you and and how this can affect women without even realizing I mean in terms of things like like body hair removal and and those things that people just think oh I like to have a have smooth underarms because it makes me feel good or is that something that is told to us by the media because we live under a patriarchy. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's just me going on a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Okay, so for me, internalised misogyny is the absorption and then your own internalization and externalization of misogyny towards yourself as a woman and towards other women. Mm -hmm. So that can be anything from like, you know, some of the superficial stuff like appearance, you know, assuming that you have to look a certain way 
um, to be accepted in the world, that your worth comes from your appearance or from being thin or uh, from being sexy, being desirable or whatever it is, but also then putting that on other women and then and then you know sort of making comments about other women's bodies making comments about like negative comments or even bullying harassing women for what they look like um you know how much they weigh what they do but it's much it's much deeper than that superficial stuff like the superficial stuff Mm. is bad enough but there's actually things like for example i work with a lot of internalized misogyny in in um professional settings and what you'll find is the, say, for example, a woman's done really well and she becomes, I don't know, a director or a CEO. It won't just be the men that are making her life hard. It'll be the other women saying mm. things like, well, she only got there because she shagged her way to the top. Like, who did she, who did she like give a blowjob to to get there? Mm. And you mm. think, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, if <laughs> if you are a woman in that setting with her, is that how you want to be treated at work? Like, no, it's not, is it? If you got to that role, would you be making Mm. comments like that Mm. like you know you would be horrified if other people spoke about you like that it's the sort of the assumption from other women that you are not capable you are not as capable as a man Mm. that a man would be doing a better job than you that men are better than you there's so much internalized misogyny around dating uh Mm. around employment around mental health you know there's there's, and just everything really finances like like for example i'll give you a really interesting example of internalized Mm. misogyny that i see women do all the time please do they're absolutely fine with men getting rich and being rich and celebrities and and like stuff like that but women getting rich and being rich and spending money and women like lose their heads on social media like for example like you've got you know, sort of guys that are going out buying six Lamborghinis, two mansions, you know, and like living it up. And that's like wealth and power and it's amazing Mm. and it's success. But a woman goes out and spends, I don't know, 200 grand on a handbag and everyone loses their minds. Like, how dare she? Why isn't she giving it to charity? And it's like, what? People are out there, like, you know, <laughs> laughing with Kanye West. Like, he's out there slandering people. He's having a mental breakdown all over Twitter. Like, we know he's in rehab. We know he's mentally ill. We know he needs help. But it's all just, like, fun and games and he's rich and powerful and whatever. But then when someone like Amanda Bynes has a breakdown on Twitter, shaves her head, gets a face tattoo, all this, everyone's like, or like Cara Delevingne at the moment, you know, we've seen her in the street yeah, I've seen on the stuff, yeah, TikTok. With it is, it's yeah. absolutely heartbreaking to watch and everyone's just like, can't believe this. Amy Winehouse 2.0, like what a disgrace. And it, it just, the parallels there are so obvious when you look at wealth and, you know, power, whatever that even means, and celebrity, you can see it so clearly there. Yeah, I agree. Although I don't agree that Kanye is mentally ill and I don't think that any Mm. of them are having mental breakdowns. I actually think that it is not natural or normal to live like a celebrity. You have got no privacy. You are watched by millions of people 24 hours a day. You can't leave the house to go to a shop. You have Mm. no social life. People believe that, that being famous and being a celebrity is a barrel of laughs. It's not. You can't like decide you're going to go out and see your friends because Mm. you'll get mobbed you can't you know you can't nip to the shop because you'll get mobbed you live in your own little bubble because it's the only safe place to live anymore and then you you know you get papped somewhere and then the six 
you know, different headlines, lying about where you were and why you were there. Mm. And then you're getting phone calls constantly. Like, can you make a statement about this? Can you do this? Can you do this interview? Why have you done this? Why have you done that? You know, and that's not normal. And the Mm. human brain is not developed to deal with that. That's not Mm -hmm. normal. And I think that what we actually see is people breaking through trauma, the absolute trauma of becoming like, Mm. almost like, a zoo animal but for billions of people to watch you know yeah and maybe their response is normal for what like for a normal human going through something like that like yeah it is it's just not what people want it to be so like for example Kanye's responses yes they're offensive yes they're harmful yes they look really out of control but if you consider the lifestyle and and the way that the human brain will not cope with everything like and look at Cara look and also look at the amount of celebrities that kill themselves they're taking overdoses we know that the lots of celebrities are taking hard drugs they use it to cope loads of them are on sleeping tablets they're taking Mm. sedatives every day because they can't sleep anymore there's Mm. a reason why that's happening to them Mm. it's not because they're all just mentally ill that Mm. makes no sense it's because they're living a life that is impossible to live safely yeah. So you become traumatized. Another question I had was how do you think internalized misogyny might be we- making women feel without consciously realizing it? So I know we spoke about um you know in the workplace and financially and everything, but how do you think it makes women feel without realizing it? And what are some questions that people listening can ask themselves to help unpick any internalized misogyny they might not even know that they're experiencing? Oh gosh, it depends. So there's two, so what you need to do when you're thinking about internalized misogyny is think about it almost in two different layers. So the first layer is the internalized misogyny that you use to attack yourself with. Mm -hmm. And then the second layer of your internalized misogyny is what you use to attack other women with. So you've, you've got the, the messages that you give to yourself via internalized misogyny, like I'm not good enough. I'm fat. I'm disgusting. I'm not worth anything. I need to lose weight. I need to look better. I need to be young forever. I need to be thin you know, I need to be sexier. Like, why is nobody paying attention to me? I'm not good enough for this. I'm not mm-hmm. clever enough. You know, um, like all that sort of stuff, right? Is is that like internalized misogyny about, you know, I don't know, things like, oh, I'm ashamed of how many people I've had sex with or I shouldn't be mm-hmm. doing this or like ashamed about your sexuality because all homophobia comes from misogyny. All, mm-hmm. all homophobia has a root in misogyny. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you are struggling even with your own homophobia or with homophobia towards yourself, internalized homophobia, you'll find mm-hmm. also internalized misogyny there and often like other forms of bias, like internalized racism and things like that. Yeah, but okay. then you've got to look at the things that you do to other people, like, the messages that you get about other people like for example when you see a woman that you perceive in some way to be better than you do you jump to the defense or do you attack her or do you get jealous or do you hope something bad happens to her or are you secretly like happy when she starts struggling like that's your misogyny kicking in like what Mm. what what are you getting out of that i read um a quote recently that said you know hating other women is like drinking your own poison and expecting them to die Mm. like and I really like that because I think that's what happens I think women that become hateful towards other women that they perceive as better or doing well or whatever it is that they don't like about them that they're prettier or that I don't know they're more successful or whatever that hatred is poisoning you as a woman your internalized misogyny is harming you you know and you're 
that is changing your life. It's changing the way your brain works. It's changing your mm. outcomes. It's changing your personality. It's not having the impact outside that it is having on yourself. So like processing your own internalized misogyny and your hatred for other women is a is one of the healthiest things you could do for yourself. And how else do you combat it apart from recognizing it and challenging your own thoughts and when those thoughts creep in going like, hey, like that's that's not good enough. Like I shouldn't be feeling that way. How do we how do we challenge that? Like would you recommend things like therapy or would you recommend being open about it with your friends? Like what what would your first steps be to sort of, you know, overcoming that and and helping to be more accepting of other women and yourself? I think talking to your other female friends is only a good idea if they are all on the same page as you. Because if you start having a conversation about I don't know, say you're all sat around and you go, do you know what? I've been thinking recently that I actually have a lot of internalized misogyny. I feel like I hate a lot of women just for like no reason. And that I really like, I hate scroll or whatever it is. I don't know. Like, so imagine you're sat doing that. Mm. The problem is if you've got other women around you that are not ready for that conversation, all they will do is pull you back into your internalized misogyny because it'll make them feel more comfortable. If Mm. you get like, like gossip, like pulled back into gossip, pulled back into, Mm. you know, lying about someone or like mocking them or whatever, because it, if they're not ready for that challenge, they won't let you do it. Trust me. Yeah. And they'll probably see it as an attack as well in a way, because they might think like, if you're saying I hate other women, they might be like, well, what? Do you hate me? Yeah. Um, You know, you have to have the right person to talk to. I Mm. mean, obviously therapy is is one way of doing that. But again, um, therapists are often misogynistic and have Mm. their own internalized misogyny. So you have to remember that therapists are not infallible. You are going to come across therapists that actually do harm Mm. or encourage you down ways of thinking that are actually not healthy for you, or they Mm. don't challenge you enough when they should be doing. Um, So, you know, I think that this is a journey that you have to go on almost on your own. Like you Mm. have to, you like at the end of the day, these thoughts and behaviors that all of us exhibit, they're our own choices. They are. Like, you're not doing this because you're out of control of your mind. You're out of control of your own thoughts. It's Mm. just that you're not controlling them currently and you could be doing more. So a lot of this work, I think, you do have to do on your own. And maybe it's using resources. Like, obviously, you've got your books that you've written. Do you have any other good resources that people who, you know, have related to this chat and and think that they want to learn more about it? Is there anyone else who inspires you that does really great work in this field? Oh, there's so many. Um, I really love um, Laura Richards' work. She does the crime analyst podcast. She's specifically around cases where she picks them apart. Mm -hmm. But her like way of thinking about misogyny and internalized misogyny and pathologization is like so sharp. And you know what? Honestly, I love having people like you on the podcast. Like you're just so well informed. You're so knowledgeable. And I think even doing this podcast every week, I learn so much from people like you. So I think, yeah, just thank you so much for coming on and, and for having such an open and honest discussion. And I think everyone has a lot of work to do so I'll put the um, resources in the episode description and and everyone you just mentioned as well I'll pop a link in there so but thank you so much for jumping on the podcast Jess I hope you enjoyed my chat with the wonderful Jess please let me know on my Instagram TikTok Twitter whatever if you have any stories or thoughts of your own to share love and elbow taps peace
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.